Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's always good to see you, by the way. So we're glad you're with us. A lot of new faces. Thank you for coming. And we hope today's an encouragement with you. A lot of times people come to a church and they wonder, what in the world is this church? And what do they believe? And who are they? So what we're going to do for the next two weeks, I'm going to have this week and next week. This week is the what. Who are we and what are we doing? Next week is going to be how are we going to do this and how can you fit in to help us in our mission statement. Every church, by the way, has its own character. Did you know that? You learn this as a pastor. You come to a church. You don't really get to know the people. You come out of school and you're all wild and have all kinds of good ideas. And you go there and cast your idea on the people and that's just not who the people are. Guess what you learn as a pastor really quick? That doesn't work. Then you actually find out who God brings you. And by the way, there's this great transition in ministry. I won't bore you with it. This is all internal stuff. But normally, a new pastor comes into town. You have an influx of people. And then when the pastor stays there from about year one to two, you get all kinds of new people. And then he stays there until year 10. And then a lot of those people that were here leave And then God brings in other people, just how ministry goes. But then there's the building years from about year 10 to 15. That's when a pastor decides that through thick and thin, good and bad, he's going to stick it out and he's going to stay and he's going to be committed to the people that God gives him and he's going to lead them and pray for them and be involved in their life and a cohesiveness comes in the midst of that And God begins to do something. Now, in case you're wondering, we're in years 10 to 15 here. And God willing, you know, I don't know unless y'all run me off or I die or something happens, maybe I stay here 15 or 20 more. I don't know until the Lord actually takes me out or moves me on. We are committed to you here at Trinity. What do we want to do at Trinity? So COVID taught us a lot of things, okay? Different churches have different styles, different philosophies. Here at Trinity, we are not in it for the numbers. Now, I want you to hear me carefully. We are not here to count noses and say we have 500 people. We learned through COVID, actually, that multiple services is not for this church. We could actually grow this church probably to be 400 people if we made several adjustments. The problem is... We could not create the atmosphere in the church that we want. What is that atmosphere? We want a group of people who are connected to each other in such a way that we know each other's needs, we know each other's desires, we know each other personally by name, and we help meet each other's needs. As a result of that, that, that need that is met inwardly God moves upon our heart to get outside of our own selves because church is not all about in-reach. As a matter of fact, if you study the New Testament, it's not hardly about that at all. God does that, and it is important, but the reason he does that is so that we will be healthy and therefore turn outwardly. And that's when you know that your church is actually beginning to be healthy is when you start having an outward focus on your community and the people who are around you. And we ask this question all the time. If Trinity was wiped off the map today, who would miss us? 
And folks, think about that. That's a startling statement. If our church disappeared today, who would miss us? Would it only be us? Or would it actually be our community? And when you answer that question, you discover very quickly if you are effective where God puts you in the midst of your community. Now, God in his sovereignty placed this church right here in this time and this place. He has put us here. He has put you here. We are here together to meet the needs of this community. And not just this community, but also around the world. And the question becomes, how do we do that? So we have reformed our mission statement. I've had like three since I've been here. And I think this one is going to be the keeper. I don't think we'll ever get rid of this one because in my opinion, it's the best one you could ever have. We exist at Trinity Community Church to point people to Jesus Christ. That's, that's why we're here. In everything, in our Sunday morning worship service, in our outreach programs, and in our daily life when we go out, our whole purpose is to point people to our Lord. So how do we do that? What are some characteristics? And I'm just talking. Are you all with me? I'll get into God's Word here in a minute, I promise. But what are some characteristics of a healthy church that brings glory to God? Go ahead. Floor's open this morning. Anybody, anybody know? What are some characteristics? Throw them out. Okay? True to the word. Welcoming. Welcoming the new people. That's a, that's a good one. Love for each other. Huge. Huge. What else? Worship. Serving. What else? I'm looking for one. Praying. I'm looking for another one. Especially important today. Discipling. Build that out. What does that involve? If you disciple other people, what do you have to have with them? Relationships, connection, and so forth. Okay, so we can just pray and go home, okay? Because we've got it. Here are some characteristics. Five characteristics of a healthy church that brings glory to God. Here they go. Number one, love. A church is permeated by love toward its own people and others. So we love God as a result of loving God. That is a direct impact on how we treat other people. Love God, love others. That's called the great what? The great commandment. That was Jesus' summary of the law. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We'll talk about that in just a minute. The second characteristic is growth. Somebody mentioned this. This has to do with discipleship. We know God's Word. We study. We get involved in the lives of other people. That impacts us, and it causes us to grow what? Grow how? To grow to be more like Jesus every day of our life in the way that we work at our job, in the way that we treat our family. I mean, this is our goal, right? That our our men would be good fathers, they would be good husbands, that our wives would be, or the women would be good wives, they would be good mothers, and that everyone, no matter where we are in our employment, would know there's something different about us. We're honest. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't steal. We're not out to step on people. We're not out to take their money or take advantage of them or toss them under the bus to try to get ahead of the next person. We're not trying to climb the corporate ladder. We're trying to climb the ladder to be more like our Savior. And that's how we treat people. 
And hopefully that is the attitude that permeates all of our people. That's what we want. That is Christianity in action. The third characteristic is connecting. And this is what we were pushing at. We want to be able to connect to each other. By the way, this causes some uncomfortableness in life because not everybody can connect with everybody. Some people have personalities that are like putting a cat and a dog together. And we understand that. And Christians are not exempt. And, you know, that's just how life goes. But I'll guarantee you, out of a church this size, there are people you can connect with. Now, next week, I'm going to be talking to you about how to connect. I'm going to hone right in on that one. Because, believe it or not, that one is so critical in today's culture. Critical. Do you all, do you all know who are the, most, the two most dominant generations that are alive today? Who is the most populous and what is their greatest need? Well, I'm going to tell you about them, so just let that boil back there. But this is the day in which we live. And if we say that we are culturally relevant and we are actually not meeting the needs of this culture today, I mean, God didn't put us back in 1950. God didn't put us in 1990, as much as I would like to go back. We are now in 2022. The whole world is different. You realize that my children have grown up in a world where they have never known anything but internet and smartphone screens? Now, let that one set in for a while. That generation knows nothing except internet and smartphone screens. What do we do with that? How do, we, how do you reach, how do you connect with people like that? And by the way, the poor kids in that generation have also now had to deal with parents who are addicted to smartphones. So let me gouge mom and dad a little bit. And by the way, my wife reminds me of this too, and I remind her so we have fun with each other. Hey, dad, hey, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Dad, yeah, what? Distraction. Just think about that. So my point is there has to be some kind of connection that we have with each other, and a church that is effective and brings glory to God knows how to do that. Now, how do you do that? Well, you have to come next week because that's what we're going to talk about. Somebody mentioned this, serving one another. God wants us to have a servant's heart. We'll talk about that today. And then finally, reaching. We don't just want to have in-reach, we also want to have out-reach. And we do that. And by the way, it's so wonderful, I just say this, it's so wonderful to look out and see faces of people that have come to our, what we call, outreach programs. Programs that we have at the church for hurting people that are going through difficult times in their life to try to give them hope to help them know that just because you're in a bad time in life now doesn't mean God can't, won't, or doesn't want to use you. He will help you. And God has brought people. We never try to steal people from other churches, ever. We always tell them that. But we always tell them if you're looking for a church home, we have a home here for you at Trinity. And God has brought us many people like that. And our prayer is that they will catch our vision to want to help people and they will get involved and start another ministry to reach other people. I'll give you one for instance. Somebody rolled in on Wednesday night this past week, doesn't go to this church, won't mention his name, but he came and he had had a tragedy in his life. And I was talking to him and I said, you know, I am so glad you came. You know, I'm sorry you're hurting, sorry you're going through this. And this is what he said. 
He said, I'll tell you what. He said, the minute that this, this fell upon me, the first thing I did was went and typed in your church and typed in your name because I heard about you all and I knew about you. And my, my first thought was, God, I thank you that they're there and they're ready. And he said, that's the first thing I saw when I typed that in. And he said, I knew you all would be here and I knew you would be ready and I knew you would help us meet my need. He said, thank you so much for being here. Let me tell you something, folks. When hundreds of people hear that, that we're here to help them, and we're here to help reach them and meet their needs, that is when a church starts making a difference in their community. And that's why we're here. So, how do we think about this concept and boil it down? We'll take God's Word and find Luke chapter 10 this morning. I want to talk to you about the importance of meeting people's needs. Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. I hate when people name that the parable. Even the ESV titles that the parable. How do you know that's a parable? You don't know that. They don't either because it doesn't say, and behold, he told them a parable. He told them a real story, I believe. I believe that not only did they know this, but they actually witnessed it with their own eyes. And this is what happened. And I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 10. And for those that didn't bring your Bible, yes, I put it on the screen for you. Because I'd rather you see it than not. But here's what happened. Jesus was in a point in his ministry when people were opposing him. Can you imagine that? Conflict in life. Everywhere he went, somebody was trying to put him down. In this particular instance, the text says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, when you read that word lawyer, what do you think about? You think about somebody in a suit going to the courthouse, and he's standing up defending a defendant. But that is not what lawyer meant in the New Testament. Lawyer uh, was another term for someone who specialized in the Old Testament books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books. They were someone who scribed out or wrote out by hand the first five books of the law. And these scribes knew how many Hebrew letters were in each book. They knew how many words were in all, all five books. They would count the letters, by the way, to make sure that they were accurately writing down exactly what God said. It's a fascinating study if you ever study that. But here's a guy who had dedicated his whole life. He knew every Hebrew letter. Most of them could quote them without even having to look at them, by the way. That's why they were mesmerized when Jesus got this scroll of Isaiah. I mean, y'all know how thick Isaiah is. Could you imagine being in a scroll? And they took him to the temple, and he goes up there, and he just starts whittling through the scroll, you know, whips it out, and turns right to a section in Isaiah right in the middle and quotes two verses out of it. And they all stood back and went, he didn't go to our seminary. How did he know how to find that? And remember when he read, he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears today. Uh, He had their ticket, by the way. He was God. He is God. So in this particular instance, a lawyer comes to him to put him to the test, and this is what he said to him. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, by the way, there are a lot of people who are confused today about eternal life. Most don't even believe in eternal life, by the way. 
But those who do think that they can get there by many different ways. Some believe you can get there by being a good person. Some believe that you get there because the good in your life outweighs the bad. And there is constant confusion. Some believe that just because they have affiliation with someone who is involved in some certain religion or whatever gives them the right to have eternal life. People are confused. They were confused back then. They're confused today even more so. I mean, how important is it to be able to answer this question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's just stop, because I preached on this last week. Y'all even remember what I preached last week? It was for a reason. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Must you strip off everything you have and crawl on your hands and knees all the way up North Franklin Street to find a church altar to crawl up to? Must you give money that you have to a building project to think that you're going to earn way, your way into heaven? Must you go online and donate? Some? No, no, no. Must you be good and never say a bad word or think a bad thing? Or No, no. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said what? He who believes on me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. What must a person do to inherit eternal life? They must believe in Jesus. That his death, burial, and resurrection paid the full payment for their sin. And folks... That's it. That's it. They must believe. So this lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice what Jesus does. He knew this man's heart. By the way, Jesus was the wrong person to go up and try to trap. These same group came to him shortly after this, because he threw them in a conundrum here. And one came up to him and said... Uh, Lord, what do we say about the Christ? And he said, well, you tell me. Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's David's son. He said, then why did David say back in the, the Psalms, he is my Lord? How would he call the Messiah his Lord and be his son? And they all gathered around and huddled and got in their theological discussion and they came back and said, we don't know. And the text says they never asked him another question after that. Tied them in pretzel knots. What must I do? He said to them, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, by the way, you should put a little mark right there because you know I have to go in a dialogue. If you study Scripture chronologically, you'll know that Jesus had just preached a sermon earlier and somebody asked him, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? He said exactly this right here. So he should have had a footnote here and said, well, I heard from your sermon, but he didn't. Because what he was ask, asking him is, if you take the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, which, what are the Ten Commandments? 
You'll have no gods before me. Create no carved images. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's the first four, right? What, what are the last six? Y'all remember? Honor father and mother. Don't steal. Don't tell lies. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Good. Chandler, you did good. There's ten. Now notice what Jesus did. The first four, no gods before me, no carved images, no idols, don't take his name in vain, and remember the Sabbath. He took those first four and he boiled them down. And what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He took that out of another, another Old Testament book where Moses was coming back and applying those four. That's what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Don't have anybody above him. Don't try to represent him. Don't take his name in vain and worship him. And then he comes under that and the other six about not telling lies, not being greedy and covetous and committing adultery and all those things. That's how you show love to your neighbor. So he took the Ten Commandments and he broke the top four off into love for God and number five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten as love for the neighbor. And he summarized it in these two. Now there's no way this lawyer would have come up with that had he not heard Jesus' sermon. But he answers him and says this truth. So now notice what Jesus said. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Have you ever created an, an image? You ever put anything above Him? You ever took His name in vain? Have you ever not worshipped Him? Have you all ever missed church? You ever missed a, a Sabbath church? Go ahead and say yeah. Yeah, we've all done that. Well, we're in trouble. You can't keep those. What about uh, the other six? Shall we plow this ground? Jesus did this on the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, when they all thought they were religious. And he said, you know, they, they were being all holy. I've never committed adultery. I mean, I've been... He said, you ever looked at a woman and lusted after her in your heart? Every man here, go ahead and say, I'm guilty. Go ahead, because that's your nature. All right, you're guilty. Guilty. Anybody ever been covetous or greedy oh my we're we're guilty i mean there's no hope of inheriting eternal life if you think that we're going to have to keep the ten commandments in form and in spirit it's just not going to happen do this and you shall live now i want you to notice this this lawyer was very arrogant so what does he say to himself he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, can't you imagine the Lord said, oh, so you've mastered the top four. You, you already love God. and I mean, you know, that's obvious, right? Who is my neighbor? Now, notice what Jesus does. He tells a story. He doesn't say, let me tell you a parable. I think what he told them was something that was posted on social media just a few days before, and all of them knew it because they walked right by him. Who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, by the way, where was Jesus on this mission? He was coming from Jericho to Jerusalem. Hmm. Perhaps this was a real-life event. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by him on the other side. You know, look at that. I, I need to stay away from that. I'm I'm busy. I've, I've been there at the temple the whole time. I'm going, I've, I've already done my work for God. I'm done. I mean, I'm tired. He doesn't know how I feel. Y'all imagine this, a priest. What did a priest do? He stood between man and God. By the way, all of us today are believer priests. Did you know that? You don't have to go to anybody and ask them to pray for you because their prayers are not heard one ounce more than yours. We are on equal footing with each other before the throne of God. So he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. Who was a Levite? A Levite was someone who came and helped serve the priest. So they would carry in the, the offerings and the sacrifices and take care of the daily chore and the priest himself would go and perform the activity. So here you have two of the highest religious people in the land. You would think, surely, if anybody was going to help anybody, it would be these people who love God and love others. Right? Remember now, who's my neighbor? So when the Levite came to the place and saw him, what did he do? He followed the priest. He passed by on the other side as well. Both of them left him there. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed came to where he was, and when he saw him, key word here, he had compassion. Now, hold on for a minute. What does it mean to have compassion? By the way, there's a place in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus looking out at people. Can you imagine being omniscient for a minute? You know, and knowing everybody's thoughts, would that not be scary? Because I'd be looking out at you and some of you'd be going, is he ever going to get on with this? I have things to do. And, you know, some of you aren't even, you know, you're, I, I don't know where you're at. But it'd be scary for me to know that. So I'm glad I don't know that. Jesus looked out on a multitude of people knowing their hearts and their needs. And the text says, he had compassion on them. Because they were as sheep scattered without a shepherd. If you've ever had sheep, you know how helpless they are. And when they're scattered, the wolves can come in and kill them. Wild dogs can kill them. And sometimes sheep just get, the, get themselves in their own trouble. Out being nosy and wandering around where they shouldn't be. Like sheep without... And, and it didn't make him get mad and angry. He had compassion. Compassion is a moving of the heart to feel the hurt and the needs of other people. One of my greatest fears about COVID 
was that it would cause people to be so inwardly focused they would have no compassion for anybody else. It's always self-preservation, self-protection, self-this and self-that. We're eat up with that anyway. But thank God for the gospel and for the Holy Spirit who moves in our heart and our life to help us actually feel compassion for somebody. And if we can't hurt with people and hurt for people, we're in trouble. And I want you to hear me carefully this morning. Do you know why the priest and the Levite did not stop and help this broken, beaten man? It's because in their religion, they had become so formalistic, they had no feelings left. It was all form and no feeling. Would to God that we had some feeling for hurting people. Perhaps one of the reasons God allows pain into a believer's life, sometimes beyond what we think is necessary, is to humble us where we can actually feel the pain and the hurt of other people. God doesn't waste our pain. He doesn't waste our hurt. He doesn't waste our hardships. God allows those things in our lives to make us compassionate. That's what He wants us to be, as compassionate people toward others. Here's a Samaritan who journeyed and saw this man, didn't even know him, and he had compassion for him. So, as a result of him having compassion... He took action. Notice what he did. He went to him, probably having to cross that ravine, if you've ever been to Jericho and saw those little goat paths going down both sides of the canyon. He had to make his way over there. He took an effort. be like going down 460 and seeing somebody with a flat tire on the other side and having to drive all the way up the road, turn around, come all the way back to help him change a flat. By the way, I was praying this morning. I wouldn't see anybody with a flat tire. Uh, a guy taught us this. It was actually a missionary. He said, you know, he said, I, I teach my children. And he said, this is my personal practice. If I'm ever driving down the road as a man and I see a woman broke down the side of the road with a flat tire, he said, I don't care what I'm doing. I always stop and help her if she's by herself. He said, and this is why, because if that was my wife or my daughter, I would want no one other than a good Christian man who was willing to stop and help them change their tire, and then help them on their way. He said, I would want somebody to do that for me, so that's what I do for myself, and that's what I challenge my kids to do. And he challenged us. He said, that's what I challenge you to do. So men, men, keep that in mind. When you see a lady, you know, don't pull out your phone or look on your radio. If she's standing there by herself, maybe we should pull over and help them change their tire, or at least get them help. And if you don't know how to change a flat tire and you're a man, see, see one of us and we'll help you. Because there are a lot of people that don't know how to change a flat tire. But everybody should. He went out to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. By the way, that's two days wages. He took out two, two denarii and gave to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend on his hospital bill, 
I will repay you when I come back. Now, listen, folks, he didn't even know this guy, and he's already given him two days' wages and said, whatever it takes to help him get back on his feet, I'll pay it. Now, what, what are some characteristics of this Samaritan, by the way? You know who Samaritans were. They were Jewish, Jewish people who were invaded by Assyria back in the captivity, and the Jews called them half-breeds. They were inbred, they said, because the Assyrian men took the Jewish women and they had babies and they grew up and they became Samaritans, half-Jew. And that's why the Jews didn't even want to walk through the land. But Jesus went through that land, didn't he, and found the Samaritan woman. You remember the story? John chapter 4. And so he shares this story. What are some characteristics of this Samaritan? He was compassionate. What's another characteristic? He, he thought about others. He wasn't greedy. He was willing to help. He was willing to go the extra mile, by the way. I mean, what an example of somebody. And he didn't even know the guy. But he felt for him. So now Jesus asks this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now remember... The lawyer's the one that asked the question. Jesus would have never told this story had the man not asked him, seeking to justify himself, you know. I wonder how many people he had walked by who needed help. I believe, this is my personal opinion, I could be wrong here, this is not text. This is my opinion. I believe he saw the guy. I believe he's the one who walked by him. And I think Jesus stuck the knife in and twisted. I could be wrong. If I get in heaven and I'm corrected, I'll be the first to admit it. But I, I believe he was either directly or indirectly aware of this. Now notice what his response is. He said, and can I read it, I think, the way he said it? At first he said, who is my neighbor? After this story, he said... The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now, let me ask you a question as we think about this in the context of our church and our mission to point people to Jesus. Who is our neighbor? Do we know our neighbors? Now, by the way, I'm going to give you some inside information which I probably shouldn't, and I hope this is not boring, but I want you to know who is our community? Uh, Kent Hughes writes, Love for people, or the lack of it, reveals the quality and effectiveness of the way we view the world. And from a biblical perspective, our love for people is even more revealing because it actually indicates the authenticity and health of our relationship with God. We can apply that individually. In other words, if we really think we love God and Jesus, what are we doing for people who are in need? Or if we as a church think that we've got it all together, what are we doing for hurting people? How are we meeting their need? Who is my neighbor? It's whoever needs me at the time that God allows them to be put in my life. That's who my neighbor is. And... 
This is the concept, by the way, that, it, that frees us to help other people. When we realize that we are loved by God now and forever, and there's nothing that you're ever going to do in Jesus Christ that's going to cause God not to love you, when you realize that, it frees us to love other people as we should. That is a life-changing statement right there, by the way. If it ever sinks in the heart and deep in the soul, that will transform and change us. So who is our neighbor? Let's think about Christiansburg, right, where God puts us. And by the way, this is a demographic. That is, who are the people around us? And it's a psychographic. That is, what do people, what are they like? What are their wishes and desires in life? This is a quick survey, by the way. If you take, by the way, what do you think the average commute is from Christiansburg to work and back? What do you think the average length is? 20, 15 to 20 minutes. So the way that people used to do demographics was they would take your, ge- your geographical location and go five air miles. That is no longer legitimate because people don't just travel five air miles because we don't have a horse and a buggy, unless you drive a Ford, that is, and then you are limited. I- I'm kidding. I'm I'm kidding. Listen, Brian gets to preach in two weeks, and I'm sure I'll have to hear it forever. But, but the fact is, people are more mobile, and they drive, and they travel more. And so when you do demographics, and by the way, if I asked the question this morning, how many people drove more than 10 minutes here? Just raise your hand. More than 10 minutes. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Raise your hands up. Right. Okay, half or more. So this is a very good idea of how many people... And how accurate this is. If you take a 15-minute radius from Christiansburg and go around, you come up with about 82 to 83,000 people. Now, that's including Tech. That's including Radford. But they are in our community. By the way, we have some Tech students here. I won't embarrass you, but we're glad. And Radford. I don't want to leave them out either. And others. But people do come here from those areas. So when you take that and you boil down the education and so forth, what is the education rate? Well, there's only 6% of these 80-some thousand who have no high school diploma. But 51%, by the way, folks, have an earned bachelor or a grad program degree. We live in a fairly educated society. Uh, 19% have a high school diploma, and 24% have some college. So mostly you would say that we are in an educated environment. What about the population growth? Well, without boring you to death, the population has grown pretty much dramatically over the the past few years. Now, this is post-COVID because when I actually ran this report, it was right before coronavirus. But it's amazing because we believe that it's actually increased now because people are moving here like crazy. You can't even find a house. I mean, don't list your house for sale or be gone tomorrow. Craziest thing I've ever seen. Now, what I want to ask you is, what do you think that the, out of this population is the, the largest percentage age-wise in this demographic? In other words, who, is, who makes up the most of this demographic? Who would you say it would be? Go ahead. 25 to 35-year-olds. Year, year How many would agree? Y'all better agree with him. He's, he's pretty close. 
uh, actually, there are two groups uh, of, the, of the entire 80-some thousand population. The 20 to 24-year-olds make up 25% of our population. Now, I say that to say, that's huge. The next highest number is 15 to 19. Are y'all listening to me? In just a few short years, that's who's going to dominate the workforce. That's who's going to be sharing and leading the vision of our church. Now, I see some of y'all looking around going, Oh, my goodness. That scares me to death. Let, let me share something with you. And I want to say something to all of our young people. That actually excites me. Brian and I were talking this week. We've got to do more here to get the old gray men off the stage. I don't mean to quit preaching. Of course we're going to stand here and preach. What I mean is we need to get more 20 to 24-year-old people involved. Christian, how old are you? Where's he at? Did he leave the church? Where are you at? How, how old are you? Uh, you're too old. I'm sorry. I was thinking we, we were going to be able to justify ourselves this morning. But you know what? It Really, seriously, it is so good to see younger people up, serving, doing things, leading groups, leading youth. We, we desire the day that we have a youth group up here that's leading singing, mentoring. I saw you, Nick. Nick, on those drums of the box over here. How old are you? Oh, we, got, we had one up here. All right. I mean, this is so important for our church is to understand. So our responsibility is not to say, oh, my woe is me. Our responsibility is to say, you know what? That is our future. We must invest in their life and help prepare them to be the leaders. And instead of running away from them, we better be running to them. And as a church, I want to, I want to tell you something. As a church, if we're not running to them, they'll be running from us. And then when we pass off the scene, guess what happens? Our doors close. And that's how it works, realistically. By the way, did you know that every great awakening, there are four great awakenings in the West did you know, and I'm going to share something with you, share it next week, every major great awakening was driven by someone in their 20s. Now let that one soak in for just a minute. The power of youth. What are the seven living generations? Well, where do you fit in? The greatest generation, the silent generation, baby boomers, generation X, I'm a Gen X. Millennials, born from 81 to 95. And Gen Z, from 96 to 2010. All my boys are Gen Zs. I'm a Gen X. My dad was a baby boomer. That's, that's how we fit in. I won't tell him what Brian is. He, he told me this week. He, he's at the tail end of one. He's in just a slightly different... But this is good because it gives us perspective. You know... Brian has perspective that I don't have. I did not mean that in that way. <laughs> but he, he's, he's older than I am. He can see things. He can go in the past. He knows things that I don't know. 
He's able to share insight about stuff that's very helpful. And then we have people on the other side of us that have to inform us like our kids to help us know what is going on. What is going on in the world today? And what are we going to do to meet this world? But pause with me for a moment. Gen X, I'm sorry, uh, millennials and Gen Z are the two most populous right here in our neighborhood. Now, is that reflective in our body? If not, why not? And if it needs to be, how can it be? So those are questions we're going to answer, okay? So there's your generation breakdown. Now, when you start thinking about this population-wise, I mean, I just threw it up there on the screen. Fathom this. 29.7% is millennials and 35.5% are Gen Z. This is the projection of where it's going in the next couple of years. Fascinating. Now, how many of y'all are, uh, let's see, where's the, the greatest generation? Is anybody alive here from the greatest generation? Are y'all are willing to raise your hand? Anybody? We got a couple. I see, yeah, I know they're not going to raise their hands. Uh, what about baby boomers? How many boomers do we have? We got several boomers. How about X's? How many generation X? Woo! Okay. Now, are you ready? How many millennials do we have? Yeah. And then how about Gen Z's? Yeah. Well, one thing about it, they make more noise than we do. And they eat more than we do too, by the way. So we have a decent population. What, what about our population? By the way, the, the majority population is white, as would be expected. What is the, the most, the largest minority section in this 80-some thousand people? Asian. Exactly. And we have some. Yeah, Shuey back there. Yeah, good. And we want a lot more. We want a lot more. So, what is the population trend from 2019, 2010 to 2019? Look at the steady growth. Now, I had a chart out to 2024. They're saying we're going to grow by several thousand more by 2024. I mean, are you all hearing me for a minute? This excites me. It scares me, but it excites me. God has sovereignly placed us in a place where we can have an impact on people. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we just going to sit here and imagine that people are going to just flood into our doors because of the great preaching and music that we have? Well, we hope that some do, but that is not going to be what captivates people. What we are discovering is what captivates people is relationships. And if they are not connected, if they do not have a connect group or connection with people, they will not stay around. As a matter of fact, one of the most startling numbers out of COVID I'm getting the next week was this. The church lost a huge percentage of people. Do you know what the number one factor was why people stopped coming back to church? The number one is because they had no personal connections inside the church body. And when they didn't, they never returned. Now, if that doesn't scream out to people and leadership and so forth that there is a need 
and there's also now information about the importance of connecting, then somebody needs to ring our bell. Once again, the travel time to work, Chris, Chris nailed it. 10 to 14 minutes in this area. The largest amount of people who travel in this area drive 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, some drive, uh, where is it, 25 to 29 minutes. I mean, there's, this, this range goes all over the place, but we are a commuter-type area. People come here. Employment status, I'm not going to get into all this, but I do want to say 69% is white-collar. Only 13% in this area is blue-collar. And then 18% are in service. That means serving in some way, like restaurants and so forth. So this is, this is the breakdown. Housing and income pre-COVID, the average house, $240,000. Most people pay 6500 I mean, y'all don't want to know all this info, but I'm just telling you, this is, this is our neighborhood. This is the one that struck me. Are y'all with me? Out of these 82,000 plus, how many people faithfully attend a religious service? See that little light blue over in the corner? Out of 82,000, only 21%. Let this soak in. Faithfully attend a religious service. This is including Muslims, Hindus, and everything else you could ever imagine. So what is 20% of 80,000? 17. So about 17,000 people attend church services regularly or religious services Faithfully. Now, out of that, not to depress you, 21% uh, frequently attend. That means frequent could mean once every eight weeks. That, that would be frequent. And then you have uh, the light blue, occasionally attend. This would be CEOs. You know what CEO is? Christmas and Easter only. Uh, <laughs> they would attend at least once or twice a year. And by the way, we don't beat people up for only attending once or twice a year. We're thankful. As a ministry joke, I probably shouldn't have told it. But my point is, is there are a lot of unchurched people in our community. Now, when, when all this truth begins to sit in on us, and when we start thinking about who is my neighbor, can I, can I give a little different spin on it? Here we go. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell the Good Samaritan from a pastor's perspective. There was a man getting up to come to church one Sunday morning, and he started his car. He was anxiously anticipating going and singing praise to God and hearing a good challenge from God's Word that would be short to the point, and he could hurry and go home. But as he was driving out his driveway, he looked over to his left and saw his neighbor outside, shining his bass boat. And he began to think to himself, there's nothing wrong with fishing, but why does this man enjoy fishing more than he does church? Is it because I'm his neighbor? Or maybe I've never shared anything with him. Maybe somebody in the church heard him in the past. Why does he not want to come? And then he drives on down the road and looks over to the right, and he sees a lady and her kids out running the dog, exercising in the morning. And he begins to think to himself, exercise is a wonderful thing, 
Everybody should strive to take care of their body. But why does this dear lady find it so important to, to run during church service on Sunday morning? Perhaps somebody in the church has either never reached out to her, told her she was loved, asked her if they could ever help her, or tried to befriend her. Perhaps she doesn't even know what a Christian looks like. They drive on down the road and they see a fine, well-dressed professional heading into his office on Sunday. And they begin to think to themselves, why has this professional never came to church? Well, it's quite obvious he has to work on Sunday. So, does my church even offer one service for them outside of Sunday morning from 10 to 12? What if this man has to work from 10 to 12 on Sunday and he can't get to a church? Is there another church that offers a service other than Sunday morning from 10 to 12? And then he goes and he researches and finds out that 40% of the population has to work on Sunday. Some work night shift, some work day shift, some can't come. What does the church do to meet the need of 40%? of people who can't make it from 10 to 12 on Sunday. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Now, from a leadership perspective, I just stabbed myself at least a dozen times. But here's what we know. We can't do anything without our people. Because that is the way God designed the church. We don't pay people to come. We don't hire people. We can't. It takes a volunteer army who's willing to lead the way to make it work for the glory of God. Now, let me just share this, and I'll go over it a little bit next week, but I want to share this one thing. For those of us who are ultra-conservative or those who are ultra-liberal, probably don't have many of those, But this was the most startling. What are the political leanings of this 80-some thousand people? Very conservative was in the smallest minority. Only 10% of 80-some thousand were very conservative. 15% were very liberal. I'm at the bottom. But in the middle, you have this idea of being somewhere in between the two. And the largest percentage was exactly that, middle of the road. About 35% were Democrats, 22% Republican, and 43% Independent. And by the way, there you go. So watch which horse we ride. Or we'll miss the next generation. We'll miss it. What does Jesus tell us in the midst of all these statistics and all these people? Reach only those who are like us? No. Reach only those that believe like we do? No. This, by the way, was not given to missionaries. This was given to you and to me. The great, not suggestion, but the great co Mission, the great working together. You and Jesus. Me and Jesus. What does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all ethnicities. 
This doesn't have to do with geography. In the original text, it has the concept of people who are different ethnically than we are. Go and make disciples of all ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's where the co-mission comes in. Behold, Trinity Community Church and every other church in our area, praise God for them. You all understand that? That's, that's our feelings toward people that preach truth in our area. Praise God for them. We preach. We pray with them. Sometimes we send people there that don't fit us. Praise God for the other churches that are preaching the truth in our area. We're doing this together. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age when I come back. We are working with Him. Are we ready? Are y'all ready? Are y'all ready? What a challenge we have in front of us. Okay, so next week, we're going to talk about how do we do that. Lord willing. Father, thank you so much for your blessing, your word, the challenge. And help us, Lord, to know who our neighbor truly is. And give us hearts of compassion for people who need you. Lord, we saw this morning we are surrounded by people who need you. Help us to have our eyes open. But help us to know exactly how to do this. We pray that you'll give us passion and courage to lead the way in this generation that you have placed us in and give us the wisdom to meet the needs so that people will be pointed to Jesus. Thank you for our church and everyone who makes it up. And we ask your richest blessings upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.